Gary V Audio Experience listeners, before I give you today's podcast, I just want to say crushing it. If you have not pre-ordered or bought crushing it, you are breaking my fucking heart. Do you want to break my heart? Do you know what happens when my heart's broken? No more podcasts. So all jokes aside, uh, Podcast Nation, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. But more importantly, very specifically, I've learned through the last decade that people learn by reading books and they actually take action for all the audio, for all the video, for all the content I put out. It's remarkable to me that my five business books have been a bigger macro movement in getting people to actually do something. And to be very frank, there's a reason that Crush It was the biggest selling book I've ever had, even though it was when nobody knew who I was. It's because there's something right about the strategic mindset to be happy professionally, and then the ideas and executions around how to actually do it. This book is three parts. The mindset to finally get you to do something, or the angle to come at it. Number two, stories of people just like you that read Crush It and went out and changed the outcome of their their life and their family's lives. And number three, the up-to-the-date tactics on paper, in a Kindle, uh, and audio this summer and spring, uh, of how to go out and do it. So please, please, please do two things for me. Number one, if you've been listening for more than a week, buy this book. Number two, if you buy this book, go to Twitter right now and say, hey, Gary, picked it up from the podcast. See ya. This is the Gary V Audio Experience. Cause we're gonna be Alright, hello everyone. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Um, this is a massively sold-out event. Um, so really excited to have you guys in the room. Um, raise your hand. Who's been to General Assembly before? Cool, some of you, alright. First time. Raise your hand. Everybody else? Cool. Um, well, we are super excited um, for tonight's event. Um, we have two very incredible people, um, Gary and Casey here tonight. Um, if you're here at this event or you're tuning in online, um, you probably know at least something about them. Um, just as a quick uh, introduction on, on where, where we are, what this is. Um, so my name is Matt. Uh, I'm one of the co-founders here at General Assembly. Um, we started General Assembly five years ago, really as, a, as um, something of kind of like a sociological experiment um, to see if we could create really an epicenter and community for technology, design, and entrepreneurship in New York City. And it took off in just this r- incredible way. So now fast forward you know, five years to 2015, and um, General Assembly is, is really a new kind of educational institution. Um, you know, our, our mission is about transforming people's lives for the better, about connecting them with opportunities, with skills, um, with amazing ideas, with um, the right people, the right, the right uh, talents, um, so they can go off and, and pursue work that they love. You know, it's not just about doing what makes money, but it's about doing what, what you know, hits you here and what you're, um, what you're passionate about. And these guys are both you know, testaments to um, the power of pursuing your passions and turning that into um, not only making a living, but, but empires. Um, so without further ado, um, let's jump in. Two very, very accomplished and exciting people here today. Uh, we have Gary. Um, untold number of accomplishments, just, just a relentless, prolific individual. Um, Right out of college, uh, Gary, you took your family's wine business from $3 million to $50 million, um, in part due to your marketing prowess of, of winelibrary.tv. Um, you have uh, your Ask Gary V podcast, which you know, has an incredibly engaged YouTube audience um, and, and, and podcast as well, um, where people can actually engage and submit questions, and, and you answer and, and engage back with them and really build community around you and, and your ideas. Um, you've written multiple New York Times bestselling books. Um, jab, 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 right hook, uh, crush it in the thank you economy. Um, you've invested in uh, Snapchat, Uber, Tumblr, Twitter, Birchbox, many, many others. Um, and you know, just, just no big deal uh, on the side, you also co-founded and run VaynerMedia, um, which is a, a social media first uh, digital agency that helps Fortune 500 companies tell their stories. So really unaccomplished guy over here. <laughs> um, we are also really excited to have Casey uh, here joining us as well. Um, glad he could, he could join it in. Um, also, no, uh, no shortage of accomplishments for this guy. Um, you and your brother have a, a show on HBO um, that's doing very, very well. Um, you co-founded a video sharing app recently called Beam. We'll talk about that. 
Um, you produce incredible content on YouTube. Um, you've used the, the platform to you know, create both really groundbreaking and very forward-thinking, I think, advertising content, um, as well as campaigns around city biking issues, uh, Apple, um, really think pushing the envelope in what content and, and, and working with brands um, means. So, want to jump in. Um, I feel like I should have padded that a little bit. I didn't know I was going to like be on such a level playing field with Gary Vee over here. I could have given you like a lot more accolades. Like that time I got MVP in the seventh grade on the lacrosse team. Uh, whatever, no big deal. Next time. I, I, I won flashcards in second grade. No, this guy's good at flashcards. Spelling bee? Can't no, that's when my can't school, spell that's, that's the end of my schooling career. Cool. Um, by the way, for, um, for anyone online, uh, we're going to be taking some questions um, throughout this, um, throughout the, the hour that we have here, and especially at the end. So if you have any pressing questions, you want to engage in the community um, and engage in the conversation, um, the hashtag on Twitter is GA Live. So post that, and we'll, um, we'll, we'll be responsive. So I want to jump in. Um, you know, people talk about, you know, so much about success, but that'll be providing a lot of context on, on you know, where it came from or, or what some of those early inspirations were, those, you know, seventh grade um, spelling bees and flashcard quizzes and, and um, you know, I jest, but, but, you know, so much of success is not just, you know, what people see when you're actually achieving success, but it's about, you know, what are your stories, where are you coming from, what made you who you are today. So we'd love to hear, maybe start with Gary, a little bit about your childhood, um, especially some of the things that you think, you know, you've, you've hung out onto or have you know, molded you um, that, that's still with you, with you today? You know, I, th I think I have a big advantage for success, which is I wasn't born in America, but I came to America at a very young age. You know, I was born in Belarus in the former Soviet Union. I came here when I was three, you know, uh, and, you know, let's call it what it is. I didn't even see my dad until I was 15 and my parents were happily married. He woke up and left before I woke up and he got home after... I uh, went to sleep and he did that every single day except for two days a year until I was 14 and I was dragged into the liquor store that he at that point accomplished in owning in Springfield. So for me, you know, the story that I hang on to is that my parents worked their face off, right? Like my mom raised three kids by herself, none of the amazing infrastructure that my wife now has. Um, you know, it's just a situation where we had to work for everything. And um, you know, my brother's 11 years younger than me and you know, I can even see the difference between the way I was brought up and he was brought up. I grew up in a, in a Soviet household where, uh, where if you weren't gonna get good grades, then you were gonna have to work every minute because those were really the two options, right? And so, you know, I hold on to the fact that when I asked my mom for Nintendo, she said, cool, go get it. And so, all of a sudden, you quickly learn how to sling lemonade and you figure out how to hustle baseball cards and you figure out how to win, you know, how to become disproportionately good at pencil fighting and win bets and that. Like, you just have to find your way. And it's really interesting. I'm in the process of raising rich kids and, uh, and I think my kids are soft. And, uh, and, uh, and so I, I hang on to um, into the struggles of not having anything and having a much bigger value around the dollar and stuff uh, and the process of getting there. It's the process. Uh, so I think the struggle is what I, what I can taste and with all the success that I've had at this point in my life, I still feel so much more like that kid that lived in a studio apartment with eight family members, even with all the good stuff that's happened. It's just a driver. Totally. How do you, how do you um, rectify you know, the, the realization that that struggle has made you who you are today, and yet you, know, you also are, are able to provide for your children and your family so much now? They're gonna do different great things, right? They're not gonna have the same kind of game that I had, and they're gonna do their thing. And, you know, I have no interest in imposing my will on what I want my children to be. They're gonna do their thing and I wanna support what, my mom, look, how many people here are immigrants? Raise your hands. So, you, wow, amazing. So a lot of you know, education is really, really sold for immigrants that come to this country. My mom did an incredible job recognizing that that was not gonna be my path and she disproportionately invested in me becoming the best entrepreneur that I could be at 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, while all her friends' kids were getting great grades and I was considered the loser 
because I had bad grades, she allowed me the room to bet on my strengths and that's why I'm disproportionately more successful than all those fucking characters. And so, <laughs> and so I wanna do that for my kids. They're not gonna be as hungry or this and that, and they may be. They may look at the mountain that I build and said, screw it, I'm gonna climb that. I don't know what they're gonna do, but what I'm gonna reconcile with is I wanna support their natural DNA and their ambitions the way my mom did for me, regardless of how that makes me feel. Totally. Um, you put together a, a great video on self-awareness, um, which we're gonna get back to later, but that's a, that's a good tie-in. Um, Casey, where, uh, where are you from? What, uh, what, what in your childhood do you hang on to today? Uh, I just wanna preface all this by saying, I have spent like the last four days in Houston, Texas with like, just like a shit storm, like family issues. And we took a flight home back to the city today at 5 a.m. with like a layover. And like sprinkle on top of that like an eight month old baby. There's <laughs> a fucking nightmare. So if I space out or completely fall asleep during this thing, that's why. Also, that's, that's baby puke on my pants. <laughs> Just like transparency is everything. I wanna be honest with you guys. Uh, you know, I'm like a huge, huge fan of Malcolm X. He's my hero. And in his autobiography, they talk about I haven't read in a little while, but he was one of eight kids, I think, and he was like dead in the middle. And they talked about how when they were young, I mean always, there was no food, and they would always be hungry. But Malcolm X always got the most, his name was Malik then, got the most food because he screamed the loudest. And like, I just think that's such a beautiful truth in life. And I'm one of four kids, and there's like the firstborn, my brother Van, the only girl, my sister Jordan, she's really cute. And then like my little baby brother, Dean, and my dad got the whole, right after Dean was born, so he was the baby forever. And then there was like me somewhere in the middle, like that forgotten accident, like that was like 11 months after my sister was born, but like two years before the baby was born. So I always had like this inferiority complex as a kid, and I always screamed the loudest because of it. Um, and I think that like that is a truth in life. Like we, even for all of you immigrants, if you are here in this room, you have in some capacity like won the lotto on life. Like fucking healthy, living in the United States of America, you're in New York City right now, somehow you got into this room, like you are already in like the one millionth percentile for human beings on planet Earth. Like you are not in Aleppo, Syria right now. Therefore, like you have these opportunities that are so rich and they're right in front of you. So like you just have to scream really, really loud and you can get whatever you want. Um, and that's something that I really subscribe to. That's my religion. And I learned that when I was really, really young. Uh, probably as a result of like being semi-neglected by my parents. They were okay parents, they were good parents. They didn't like beat the shit out of us. I just like, you know, if I wanted to eat, I had to make that mac and cheese myself. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> a little of my childhood, I think you got it. Um, Thank you for being here, by the way. I really appreciate no, it. No, happy to Despite be here. the circumstances. Psyched to be here. Um, means Despite a lot. the baby puke. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I want to I touch on. Um, I want to touch on something um, that that you you pointed out earlier. Um, I think you know both for both of you. I think you, you care a great deal about presenting um, your most honest and, and real self. Um, and not trying to have a facade, not trying to you know, sell something for someone else, not trying to be someone else, um, but put yourself forward and, and you know, be, be honest you know, with your audience, um, but also being honest with yourself. You know? And so I'm curious, like, when you think about honesty and transparency, especially as it relates to the content that you're, you're putting out, where does it start? Where, where's the seed? How do, you, how, do you, um, how do you motivate yourself to be that raw and, and honest, you know, especially if, if things are, when things are really uh, you know, raw and honest, um, it's not always pretty, right? It can be ugly. How do you, where, how do you get that, that core motivation? On February 21st, 2006, less than a year after YouTube came out, I started a show for my wine business called Wine Library TV. And that kind of put me on the map in the ecosystem. The story I don't tell a lot, and I'm trying to bring some value tonight for people that have heard the spiel before, is the genesis of Wine Library TV was, hmm, this YouTube thing's gonna be really big, I've always wondered what would happen if QVC sold wine. I've always thought that I could uniquely be good at it. Let me do that. 
on this thing called YouTube because it's free. Like I can put up the video and it's not gonna cost me anything. I'm gonna do this. So I send one of my stock boys to Best Buy to buy a $300 camera. He comes in, he sets up, and away we go. Straight up. No, like, I've never done it. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just gonna go. Uh, I'm very nervous because at this point I'm selling 15 to 20 million dollars a year of premium wine to about three to 4,000 people that have me positioned as this whiz kid wine person and they're very serious players. So the first 60 episodes of Wine Library TV, I was very much not myself because I was scared to scare them off because I was this serious thing, right? And so what's really interesting about this story is the following. That first episode, there's three wines that I have and they're high-end California wines, and my intent was to sell them, because I'm a salesman. And so the light goes on, that red light that we're looking at right now, and something interesting happened, and it's really been the foundation of everything that's happened since. I realized that that video would be live forever. And that, even more interestingly, within one second of the first video, I literally thought it was gonna be successful, like really successful. And I said, you know what? You know what really scares me is I'm about to blow up, this is gonna work, and somebody's gonna come to me at a wine event and give me a glass of wine and say, what do you think of this? And I'm gonna taste it and I'm gonna answer. And if I was trying to peddle wine on the show or pan a wine on the show, that if I got caught in real life, I would be crumbled. That I had at that point already realized that all of us are living on the record. Right? All the stuff that we're now seeing, like Ashley Madison, you know, like and all this stuff, like, <laughs> like privacy is dead, right? Like in, in the way that we've known it. It's gonna be redefined. And so what happened was, I just realized one second into my career of being in public 10 years ago that I don't have any other gear than whatever's coming directly from my gut because I just wanna be consistent whether you see me on that or this or you meet me over there for a couple of selfies, I just need to be consistent because I just couldn't deal with somebody saying that I was full of shit. It's totally fair. I think it's, it's interesting, right? You look, at, you look at so much of how we present ourselves today online um, and it's, it's a highlight reel, you know? Yeah, everybody's, it's, it's, every single person here is the PR agent for themselves. If you look at the behavior of a 15-year-old girl on Instagram, it takes her sometimes as long as 45 minutes to take an Instagram photo because when you factor in setting up the shot, and then I think 14-year-old girls are the best growth hackers in the world. (laughs) They understand their likes per the first few seconds and if they don't see what they like, they delete it and go back to the drawing. I mean, like, you're living in a world where all of us are now public figures and we know it, we're all on the record. It's changing our behavior. I remember at the height of Wine Library TV, episode 400, a couple years in, I started saying, hmm, am I just a new version of myself? Am I forcing this shtick? Have I like encompassed myself? Like the things that came naturally to me, am I forcing it? Am I a caricature of myself? And it becomes very, it's a slippery slope and you start like losing sense of it. It's hard. Um, I, I think the thing that, uh, that I uh, take the most pride in is when the characters on my team get asked by their friends of like, is he really like that? They're like, yep. <laughs> you know, I like that. I think that's cool. Totally. Casey, um, how do you keep it real? I mean, I don't think there's a choice. I think you either keep it real and you're honest or you don't exist, you don't matter. Um, I think a truth that we're all faced with now, like I'm 34, when I was a kid I got like two hours of TV a day and if I was lucky and it was like whatever shit MTV or Nickelodeon was peddling that day. And now like I look at my own kid and he's fairly average, I look at myself and I'm staring at a screen like, what, 80% of my, of the time that I'm awake, like there's a screen right there and a screen right there and a screen right there and my cell phone right here keeps lighting up. Like we're always looking at screens. And the sort of the collateral effect of that is that our bullshit detectors have become so refined. Whether you're hyper cognizant of that, like Gary and me, because this is what we do for a living, or it's entirely passive, like it is for my kid, your bullshit detector is so refined that the second it starts to go off a little bit, boom, you check out and you're into something else. Like my kid, when he's watching television, television for him is like Hulu or Netflix on the computer. If it's Hulu and a commercial comes on, boom, he's in another tab and he's on Facebook until that commercial's over and then he's back. Like that is how refined his bullshit detector is. So when it comes to the kind Case, of Case, you're not talking about the eight-month-old, right? For context for everyone. <laughs> I have a 17-year-old. Just decided I'd help you guys all out real quick. My eight-month-old yeah. is amazing. 
Besides peeking on my pants, she can like just about say mama. Um, but my 17-year-old can like write code. He's a pretty smart kid. In any event, like his bullshit detector is so refined that in order to penetrate that detector, that like force field around him, it has to be true. It has to be real. And that's why for the most part he doesn't watch television, he watches YouTube. Because YouTube is sort of this like endless cornucopia of content where he can weave his way through until he finds the stuff that really speaks to him, stuff that penetrates that bullshit detector. Um, so yeah, being yourself and being honest, it means to be vulnerable, it means to be real, it's scary. Um, you have to open yourself up. But if you want to succeed in that place, if you want to make a brand of yourself, you want to put yourself out there, whether it's selling wine or, or whatever it might be, um, it is now a requirement that you be authentic. There's, there, I'm sorry to interrupt, Case. There's something else that I wonder if enough people realize. There's another variable about buying all into this, which is leaving money on the table. So, a couple examples for me. I get paid a lot of money to do public events and speak. I could make three to five X if I didn't curse. If I didn't curse in public when I do my speeches, I would be booked three to five times more. And just to put into context, we're talking about $75,000 to $100,000 per event. Real money. Like, more money than I made in a year, a decade ago, for an hour, right? But I just don't know how to do it. I, I have clients that I push in directions where I truly believe I will net out to be right over the course but I know what they're willing to buy today because of the marketplace versus what I believe and I understand that it's not consumable so I leave lots of money on the table. It's just, you know, I think a lot of people think keeping it real has all this amazing upside. It actually stunningly has tremendous downside in the short term. If you're good, it has disproportional upside if you're playing the marathon versus the sprint. And then that like what Gary just described, I think perfectly articulates my beef with advertising. Like I've done really, really well with marketing in the past, but like advertising, I have such a hate, hate relationship with because so much of it, they just look at what works and they say, okay, we want to do that. And it's like, in itself is complete bullshit. Um, to give an example, like I made a movie for Nike called Do More. And it was like this crazy video where my friend and I like got into all this trouble and like, ended up in all these crazy situations. And it was 100% real. Like, we really put ourselves in those situations. And because of that, it was, like, wildly successful. And, like, especially young people really related to that. And they were highly motivated by that. And all that lent really well to Nike's message of, of make it count and, and just do it and do more. And then, like, a year later, degree deodorant, I shit you not, came out an entire campaign called Do More. And, I, like, I talked to my lawyer, and he's like, yeah, we can definitely sue. We've got a good case, but, like, what a waste of time and energy. So I said no. But it was this like bullshit, super fabricated, like scrubbed clean nonsense of like, what did Casey Neistat do? Okay, let's do a version of that, but we're gonna fabricate it this way. Instead of just actually sending someone to go jet skiing in the Middle East, like, let's just pretend we do that and shoot it in LA off the back of the truck on a red epic with steady kit. And like, none of you have ever heard of some bullshit campaign by some fucking deodorant company. But like, <laughs> you know, like 15 million people saw that in my video. And it's because of like mine was real, so it penetrated the bullshit detector, and that whatever degree nonsense that was just like bounced straight off of people's bullshit sensor. Um, so yeah, leaving money on the table is very real. And if you have any hopes of working in marketing, especially on the kind of level that this guy does, the the willingness that's pointing at Gary, by the way, not that kid over there. Um, the willingness to say no is essential to maintaining that sort of that authenticity. That is the long game. It's knowing when to say no. Totally. Um, I know. I, I know a number of individuals and brands. Um, a, a minority, um, but some do. We'll start from a place of, of values and start and, and say, okay, if nothing else, no matter what our product is, no matter what our advertising campaign is, we're going to start from a place of first principles, a certain set of ideas or values that we believe in, and anything that we do, if it doesn't, you know, align with some of those, then we're not going to do it. Um, have you found that that is effective? Do you do you live by a certain set of uh, principles of of you know? I'm, I'm going to say whatever I say, and if I curse, I curse, and that's just me. I'm not going to hold my tongue. Um, you're going to, you know, do, do what you do. Do you have, you know, those kind of I principles mean, that's to go in? very easy for me to do when it's my work, when it's my movies. The first time in my life that it's really gotten challenging is that, is that being my technology company. You know, we have what, 13 employees right now. They're all incredibly smart individuals. They're all incredibly independent thinkers. So how do you keep a team that size? Gary has many multiples of that. How do you keep a team that size 
to adhere to a set of principles and rules. But you realize like that's the difference between something that's great and something that's not. And I think like to pick on something that we all know really well, Twitter. I love Twitter. But if I had one word to describe Twitter over the last couple years, I would say it's, it's felt rudderless. It sort of wanders in different directions, and it sort of lost its identity. And I would say a big part of that is like none of the founding members of Twitter were really a super active part of that company. The principles had faded. Again, this is just an outsider looking in. So with my own company, every decision we make, we check against our, our manifest, like our, our manifesto, our, our mission statement, our set of guiding principles. And it's a, it's a binary. Does this get us closer to achieving that, that goal, that mission statement? If it's yes, we do it. If it's no, we don't. Um, but I think that that is, that is absolutely at the core of any successful endeavor, whether that's an, uh, an independent individual endeavor or something with a team of hundreds of people like what Gary does every day. And if you don't have those, if you, don't have, if you haven't written down that, that manifesto or know those values, then, then you're, 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 you don't have an store. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think every, you know, when I first got into, uh, out of entrepreneur and startup and my own stuff into corporate, I was so upset with the people that I was working with, I didn't understand why they didn't get it. And then I started, and I used to be mad at them, the brand managers, the people I dealt with. Now I'm just much more mad with the CEO um, because she or he isn't creating a culture that rewards any other behavior than oftentimes short-term 90-day results. And then I stopped getting mad at them because I realized, oh crap, that's the game they're playing. This is a publicly held company. You know, you know, they can't see, you know, for me, I've always lived in a world where I could see all the results all the way through and I could bet on lifetime value. You know, when you start becoming a humongous company, whether deodorant or sneakers or things of that nature, you're doing so many things, it's hard to silo out what's affecting your business. And so what I've come to realize is, is what I'm really looking at is really understanding what people are reverse engineering. Are they making decisions that are in the best interest of their career within a corporate environment? Are they doing it for startup? Are they doing it for social media fame? Are they doing it for the dollars? You know, for me, I got real lucky. I just love the game. Right? I love the game of entrepreneurship so much. I love the process of disrupting the advertising industry with what we're doing. I like throwing that wrench into a system. I love the process of trying to figure it out. Um, and most of all, what I love the best is reverse engineering the market. So for my personal brand, it's everybody. For the wine business, it's wine drinkers in America. For corporate America, it's can we be an agency that disproportionately brings value to our clients in a world where I figured out, oh my God, these other agencies have to run on a certain profit margin because they're part of holding companies. So it's leveling up your thinking to understand what the other person's thinking and then decide, are you in architecture or are you in masonry? Masonry is you're gonna feed them what's something that they want and something that brings you dollars. Architecture is moving the needle into a place that could be meaningful long term. But again, it's that earlier statement I made. It's, it's a very different game and you've got a lot of wounds along the way. Totally. So, Gary, in your, um, in your book, Crush It, you talk about how the... the as, First of all, as, I just wanna say I'm so yeah. pumped that dude didn't leave. <laughs> I was so affected, I was like, fuck, I think we're killing it up here. <laughs> Yeah, you saw that? I was like, he better be taking a piss. <laughs> I, I just Sorry, assumed he was offended by all your swearing. <laughs> you nice. Um, so in your book, you talk about, in Crush It, you talk about how as, as the, the cost of content production has come down, um, that it's resulted in this, this amazing popularity of, um, of truly passionate creators who are raw and real and authentic and you know, getting their audience on YouTube, right, and, and, and taking it, it taking their ideas and, and getting them out to their audience um, yeah. without a lot of barriers you know, in between, right? As opposed to just very glossy, high production value commercials. Yes. Okay, so you know, given that and given some of the success that you've seen there, how should larger companies make use of that sea change? You know, should they give this guy um, a, a chunk of change and, and, and let him go travel the world and, and you know, just kind of create whatever they want to create? Or is there some in between, you know, between a glossy, fake, or, or inauthentic commercial and just kind of like, you know, putting it out there in the wind. So look, I mean, I wrote that book in 2009. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about how it's played out since then, it's only accelerated maybe even quicker than I thought. I think, I think the thing that people have to understand is more than anything, if you really look at the game right now, 
what I try to spend a lot of time and what I think Casey's, why I like doing events with him, because there's not a lot of people that are all in on this, I really think it's the attention graph, right? Attention. That's what we need to reverse engineer. We need to understand there's a very big difference between advertising and content. The way I define content in my mind is something that brings value in two buckets. It either entertains you or it's either a utility. It's educating, it's bringing you value in one way. Escapism, because life is hard and we want to laugh or escape for a little bit, or it's bringing you some sort of value, like an app that's like a utility app, like a weather app. These are the things, go look at what's on the homepage of your phone. You will quickly understand what brings value to people. And so, you know, to me, I think here's how the game's played out. Big companies overvalue reach, awareness. They think broad awareness is gonna win the game for them. And so there's scoring on that breath. And even scarier, they believe in these channels that have reporting, that are reporting crazy numbers versus its truth in attention, right? When you look at a commercial, people will tell you how many people saw that, but every single person in this room, when a commercial comes on, if you're lucky enough to have a commercial come on, because we're fast forwarding every opportunity we have, when that commercial comes on, every person in this room is grabbing their phone and they're either commenting on what they just saw from content, or they're checking their work email, or they're just doing something else, and none of the attention of that so-called 30-second story is penetrating them. So I think what brands have to do, big companies and small companies, GA, what you guys have to do, everybody has to do is understand, how do I provide value to the person on the other side, and how do I do it in a channel that isn't stopping you from doing what you want to do? I see all this debate right now between YouTube video and Facebook video. Let me explain the difference between YouTube video and Facebook video. YouTube video and the way that people talk about advertising on YouTube is there is a pre-roll before the content. You wanted to see something that Casey knocked out of the park and a brand or a small startup or someone stopped you from doing that for 15 seconds to show you something that had nothing to do with that or if they're lucky, something thematically that's similar. A Facebook video shows up in your stream but is normally targeted with data that they have at scale that then you get to decide if you actually want to continue to consume it. Not you went to go see something else and I stopped you. This is a big difference that nobody's talking about and so these are the things I think about. Time is everybody's asset here. Advertising the way we've known it for 70 years steals your time. You wanted to watch this, I'm gonna stop you and sell you my deodorant. You wanted to read this, you turn the page, big full page ad of a car ad, you gotta turn again. The winning game in advertising in the future is not stealing your time and taking something away, it's providing something to you. Cheers to that. Thoughts? What was the question? (laughs) 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 I'd say I I wanna make sure we we have time for for audience questions too. Um, I wanna make sure we talk about Beam. Yes. Um, so you know, with you know, there's a lot of, of video sharing, you know, apps and platforms out there. It's a crowded market. Um, what inspired you to think, all right, this is something that needs to exist that doesn't, um, and 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 how does it live in the context of, of everything else in video these days? Sure. I mean, I think that the certainly when we're fundraising, you hear a lot like that's a crowded market. That's mobile video sharing. Um, and I would agree, like that is a crowded market. But I really disagree that Beam is part of that market. I think the next generation of video sharing, the next generation of multimedia sharing on mobile is something that, that is very raw and very pure. That is purely about not what's being shared, not how it's being shared, but what's being shared. Um, and I think like apps like Periscope are a part of that, and Beam is certainly a part of that. Our sole goal with Beam is my entire life has sort of been substantiated and built, my career certainly has been built around my ability to share my ideas and perspectives via my movies. So via this creative outlet, via my ability to create creation. But creation has been the catalyst for my ideas and perspectives. So uh, about a year ago at MIT, I, I sort of, I really defined this problem, which is that like, what about all these people that don't consider themselves creators? Why is it that only creators are the ones that get to share their perspectives and ideas? And can we solve that problem? Can we remove the burden of creation with technology? And that is what Beam does. It doesn't ask you to create anything. It just asks you to share. Um, And I think if you look at Instagram, if you look at Snapchat, they're unbelievable tools for creation. And by proxy of that creation, you're sharing an idea. 
and beam really leapfrogs that need or that, that act of creation. When you get rid of filters, when you get rid of cinematography, when you get rid of review, when you get rid of preview, when you get rid of scrutiny, when you get rid of all of this, like, this self-analyzation that you subject all of your content, all of your sharing to, it just becomes sharing, which in itself is much, much closer to what, how we communicate as human beings. I would love the opportunity to play back everything I'm, about, I'm saying to you guys right now and scrutinize it and say, I sound smart there and I sound like an idiot there. Edit it, put a filter over myself so I'm prettier than I am right now, and then play it for you guys. But the world doesn't work like that. I just have to be me in front of you guys, and that's what Beam's about. And I think like the kind of whimsical little like quip that I used to define Beam is that so much of social media today is about sharing with the world how you want to be seen, and Beam is about sharing with the world how you see it. And I think that that is that gigantic differentiator. That's why Beam, this, my tech company, exists in a place that, is, that isn't crowded, but a place that doesn't really exist yet. And whether we succeed or we fail, I think that there will be this, there's a very real market for this. And in the future, this is going to be what sharing is, is what Beam is, is doing attempting to do and then successfully doing right now. Very cool. Full disclosure, Gary's an investor, so if he says really nice things, know that he's looking after his investment. Everyone should use it. <laughs> Loud, louder. <laughs> We're working on it. Cool. So it's I think really expensive to build an Android app. We have like a team of incredibly skilled engineers working around the clock to get us on Android. It's coming, it's coming. Awesome. So Beam, Beam is a great example, right, of this whole idea of be more raw, more unfiltered, more authentic, just share the real self. You know, don't take, um, you know, 40 photos and choose one, and then if nobody likes it within two seconds, take it down. Don't filter the hell out of it. Um, but instead, just have it be, you know, as, as real an expression of yourself as possible. Um, and you both talked about, you know, how that's worked for both of you, both personally and also brands. Um, what I think is an interesting idea, right, in this conversation, um, is that those are still ideas against the grain, um, especially with regards to personal branding, um, where you know just the idea of personal brand didn't used to, used to exist. You know, there were, you were just a human, and then there were brands. And now, you know, everyone's a publisser. Everyone can produce content. Everyone can share. But the, everyone real, is a personal real, real brand. Real quick right? on that, I think we yeah. get so, first of all, it's B E M E for the people that are kind of like got their faces going. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> We get way too hung up on words. Like, if we can use this, and I know a lot of people are watching, can we, we need to calm it a little down. Like, do you know how mad people get when they hear the term personal brand? Cool, then call it celebrity. <laughs> then call it awareness around a human. Like, call it what you want. Mm -hmm. People get visceral around authenticity. And all these, like, it, cool. But like, the truth is, yes. Like, normal human beings have other normal human beings now following them to see what they have to say. Mm -hmm. That's what the internet does. It creates a platform that becomes democratized, that gives people at-bats. I just wanted to get that out there because it's so interesting to me that the cynicism that personal brand comes along, call it what you want. It's just the behavior that's actually in the marketplace. Yeah, I, I, I'm gonna say something, and before I say it, I'm gonna qualify it by saying, I've been making movies for 15 years, and beyond my YouTube work, and a television show on HBO that I wrote, produced, edited, directed, and starred in, I produced two feature films. The last one premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. I'm a lifetime member of the Sundance Institute. I, I know filmmaking, and my, my place in the filmmaking world is, is, is firm. With that, my favorite genre of filmmaking is vlogging. And, and the reason for that is so much of what Gary just explained. It is the first version, it is the first genre to exist in this 100-year-old art form that's singular. It's about one person. Vloggers, they're, they're, they are the subject matter. They are the creation. They are the cinematographer. They're the entire package wrapped into one. And they all do the same thing, me included as a vlogger. They're communicating their own perspectives and ideas. And when you think about like the world and how the world works, and I know this is idealistic and whimsical, but that's who I am, it's that humanity is, is so largely shaped by perspective. And I think the greater understanding we have of other people's perspective, the greater empathy we have. And if you look back historically at like the really horrible shit that's happened in the course of humanity and the horrible things that are happening right now, 
our access to it, as our access grows, it becomes harder for these really horrible things to happen. And I think ultimately we can get to a place where we can share perspective in a way that's so dynamic that we'll have a much greater understanding of how other people are and who other people are. And by proxy of that, the world will be a better place. And that's why I think vlogging is not only like my favorite genre, but I think it has the potential to be the most powerful genre of filmmaking. There are one billion channels on, on YouTube right now. There are 400 hours of content uploaded every minute. Like how many movies premiere in theaters every year? It's like less than a fraction of what goes up in a minute on YouTube. And that's why I think it's so relevant. That's why I think it's so powerful and potentially transformative. And right now we are standing at the bottom of that mountain looking up, wondering what it's like up there. But it's gonna get really interesting really quickly. I think empathy is an incredibly powerful idea and, and you know the 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 ability to share and offer content as a way to connect people to people, you know, to almost to remove the glowing screen as much as possible, right? If that's the goal, is so that I as a human and you as a human can connect as individuals, you know, not just by looking at content, by by feeling that we understand each other. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's what that's what Beam. That's what it's about. Like that's why I wanted to. That's why I spent the last two years of my life building this company. Is because that as a tool does just that. It does nothing else. It does just that. I, I think the other thing that a lot of people don't understand is all this technology is a gateway drug to actual human interaction. Thank you. And so, and so, so the cynical point of view on this is like, oh, we're all going digital, this, that, and the other thing. It is stunning when you actually add up the time that people have been able to connect and interact because of these tools. And so everybody, you know, people, here's my favorite story on this. People go to a restaurant and they see two, a couple together eating and they're both on the phone, right? Oh. And, the, and it gets all these people panties in a bunch. Every time I see it, I actually spend more time looking at everybody else being upset about it than looking at them. And they sit there and they're super upset about it. Look, there it is, technology's ruining us. I don't know why people forgot what happened with those same two people for the last 50 years, which was, all of you remember, just take a little rewind in your mind, when you'd go out and you'd watch a couple sitting at dinner and not saying a goddamn word to each other, right? And so all it is is a replication of, all technology has done is given us options to show what we're really about. All these parents that I now hang out with that are like, oh, technology's so bad, technology's so bad, it's ruining our kids. And the second the kid is giving them problem from them not hanging out the way they want to and they're throwing an iPad at their kid, all it's doing is, what your technology is doing is showing what you're really about. What you're, I look at a couple and say, good for them. At least they're enjoying this half an hour instead of what they would have done 10 years ago. And so I, I think that there's an awful lot of cynicism around what technology's doing because you may not want to look in the mirror and realize you're choosing to look at your work email because you love work. And I know you're hanging out with your daughter, but you know what? You chose work. Your actions are louder than your bullshit words. <laughs> and so I think we, you know, I think we're going to reconcile these things. And I think, I think it is actually ironic to be having this talk during this, these big data breaches and all this stuff. Like we are about to evolve. Most of us are not going to see it because this is going to take time, 50, 60. But I am just so pissed that I have to die because I think we are going to be, we are going to be so different as humans. 50, 60 years from now, because the evolution is tremendously, guys, society has fundamentally been built on the shadows of our society. So much of the infrastructure and the things we know are based on the shadows that are now getting exposed by all of the ways we now communicate. There's a real re-fragmentation of the way we interact with each other because of this, and I think you know, it's fun to be at the forefront of feeling some of these. I mean, I am, this is tough to say out loud, but I want to go there because I want to give you guys a clean picture of this. I am dramatically a much better human being than I would have been if all this stuff hadn't happened. I am a better human being, and it's not even close in my actions because I know that I am on the record 24 7, 365. That's something we have to calibrate. Powerful stuff. So, final question um, from, from me, and then we'll, we'll open up to the audience. Um, we'll start with Casey. What are you most excited about? I'm most excited about the power of, of all this technology. I think it's where it's shifting things is, is fascinating to me. Um, 
you know, obviously my head is so deep right now in my own product in, in, in Beam and what it can do, but I had sort of this vision, this ideal when we started building the company, which was like, I would love to have this thing in my phone where I could sort of sift through it like this and then tap down in a cell and all of a sudden see what it's like to be a 23-year-old kid who lives in Poland. And then scroll through again and see what it's like to be a teenager that lives in the Middle East. And scroll through again and see what it's like to be that, that girl that gets picked on that lives in, in the Midwest. And if I could do that, if there were a way to access that like whimsical idea, imagine trying to explain that to someone 15 years ago, that my understanding of humanity would grow so quickly, it would affect me so much that that better person that Gary's describing would be something that would really be accelerated, that would really change me as a being. And you know, I'm seeing that, like that is the thing that, that gets me up at four in the morning every single day. That's the thing that has me working in, while my wife and baby are asleep in the room next door until midnight every night. Like that is what, excites me on such a level that I'm almost blinded to everything else because of. I love my family, I love my life, but like really I see everything through this like tinted green lens which is this, this thing that I'm doing called Beam because I believe in the power of what it can do. Beam's a tool, it's an, it's an app, but the power of what it can do to me is maybe the most exciting thing for me. Um, and the vlog's an extension of that and giving these talks is an extension of that and meeting with people is an extension of that. But really, like that idea of being able to really shift things at this exponential rate because of technology is the thing that excites me the most. Awesome, awesome. Gary? I have 585 employees, um, up from 30 four years ago, and uh, the thing that excites me the most is seven of them are here right now, and the way I feel about those seven is, is something that I could I could only wish on all of you. Like, to me, I know my legacy professionally outside of my family stuff is gonna be predicated on building what I secretly call in my head a human empire, which is, um, I, I think that I've finally, in my late 30s, figured out who I was as an operator and a business person, which was my disproportionate skill is that I actually really, truly, with no bullshit, love the people I work with, and for me, my mistake in building businesses is I disproportionately lend myself to building up people and mentoring and going young than maybe always, and the last year, we've been two, we've leveled out senior stuff, and that's been great, and that's been good for the growth of the business, but there is a stunning feeling as I sit here to know certain things about Andy and Emily and Rebecca, like the things I know, the things I know about you know, just silly stuff, like I had a moment with Andy not too long ago, I don't wanna blow up his spot, but it, it ended with, it felt good to stick it to her, right? And he said, yeah. It was like one of the best moments of my year, just a subtle little story in his world, and the talk that DRock and I had the other day that I know fundamentally moved him, or the ridiculous amounts of conversation Emily and I have had, or this crazy chemistry that Indy and I have on the show, and you know, and Alex and Stefan, and on and on and on. Like Alex, like getting my attention within the first 90 days of him being at at VaynerMedia and him disproportionately investing in our company because he was hoping for that to happen two years in, but it happened 90 days in, and Stefan joining our company and me being able to dismantle him on basketball on every time we play, I, you know, these are the things that like it's crazy. I I have I have 280 of those stories, and every day I'm trying to work towards 585 of them. Um, and I know there'll be a thousand of them. I am, I am very, very, very proud and very, very driven by being uh, a leader in my family and definitely in my work life as somebody that people look up to. And, and it's, by the way, it's very selfish. Like I just want everybody to understand where I'm going with this. This is, this, you know, I'm pumped that it's nice and I'm a nice boss. It's completely selfish towards the fact that I obsess over my legacy. And I don't mean the whole world needs to know me, though I'm super interested. <laughs> I, mean, I mean that I know for fact, more than anything in life, that uh, my kids, no matter, and I think I'm gonna be in a big time spot when I die, that my kids are gonna be stunned how many people come to my funeral. And what makes me happy is I've had a very good year in guilting at least two to 300 more people to come to it. <laughs> <laughs> if you can do two to 300 every year until, you know. 
That's what um, I'm talking about. That's, that's a lot of people. Okay, um, so Jim, Jim from Twitter, um, what advice would you give to people who are not going the traditional uh, college route? People are not going the traditional yeah. college route. You should high five yourself. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not quite as anti-establishment as Gary is. I don't know if I've ever said that aloud before. <laughs> I dropped out of high school in the 10th grade. Um, but I think think about where I am. Finding, finding your mission, your purpose, your passion in life is one of the hardest things you can possibly do. And I think the greatest value of education is that it can, it can accelerate that process. Meaning that you cannot, if you go to college expecting to be told the, uh, the exact path, the exact route to take to success, you are fucked because they will not be able to do that for you. No one can do that for you. But if you go there with an open mind saying, I want to find what it is I want to do in this world and what I love in this world, college can be great for that. I didn't have that opportunity. For me, my path was like literally scrubbing dishes and disgusting chowder pots at a really crappy seafood restaurant in southeastern Connecticut while I was on welfare living in a trailer park. That's where I found my passion. But not everyone's as lucky as I am to live in a trailer park and be on welfare and be faced with those hardships that force you to really focus on where you wish you were. But I think that education is a great opportunity for that. So in lieu of education, stay really, really busy. And if you don't know what it is you want to do, do something you hate. Because there's nothing that will, will show you the light faster of what you really wish you were doing than by spending a lot of time digging ditches or shoveling shit or washing dishes. You'll figure it out. Awesome. Um, another question uh, specifically for Casey. So with Beam, you know, where, do you, where do you envision it in the next um, few years? You know, what will it look like? What's, what's that vision? Well, I, I, my hope for Beam is that it becomes, this, it becomes this utility. It becomes this thing that it's become for me, but I have a slight bias towards the app. Um, uh, which is when I have downtime now, I don't sift through Twitter like this. I no longer look through Instagram like that. Um, what I do now is I look through my Beam feed like this, and I'm holding down that cell. And as silly as this sounds, like today, there's this couple that I follow that they're like, I don't know, they're probably in their early 20s and they're a couple and they live in like an average looking apartment in Russia. And like today they were making lunch. Like there's nothing special about their lives. And this sounds ridiculous to say because I'm extremely well traveled and I consider myself like a person of the planet. But I'm watching this like couple make lunch and I'm like, holy shit, like this couple that's like kind of my age that lives in Russia, that like lives a life somewhat like, like they're totally normal. And that just like really obvious thing is something They're like that, eating a fucking sandwich. Yeah, it's just like, uh, that to me like, I don't, ask me what it's like to live in Russia. All I know are like Russian dash cam videos from YouTube. There's like tanks driving across the street and fucking cars exploding. I'm serious, like I've never been exposed to that perspective before. And like every time I dive in, it moves me a little bit. And right now we have a few hundred thousand people on the app, which is great, we're a few months, we're a few weeks old. Um, it's a good number. Uh, but when there are tens and hundreds of millions of people on this app, and it truly is this journey through the world by looking through these cells and holding it down and poking your head in there. I think like the transformative opportunities that that brings on a societal and cultural level, that is what excites me most about Beam and where it's headed. Amazing. Amazing. Um, let's do a question from the, the live audience. If you guys can just raise your hand, I'll bring the mic over. Cool. Hi, um, for both of you, I have a question. If, as, as a, my first question is, as you, know, you gentlemen are up there, do you think that women could be the same as you guys sitting up there, saying things the same way and be accepted in the same way? No. Okay. And I think that sucks. But and I've thought about this a lot. Like, I, uh, I've thought about this a crap load. I, I invested in Birchbox. I wrote the first check into that company. And I sat in the pitch at, in Starbucks and said yes in 12 minutes. And I got super pumped. And like emotional, like in a good way, right? Not in a cliche bullshit like women way, just like pumped. And, and I asked them, I was like, like I, I couldn't put my finger on it. And they're like, we've gotten 60 no's in a row. You're our first yes. 
And that was cool and I didn't really think much of it. It was the nicest day, it was early in the spring, it was the nicest day of the year four years ago. Like it was the first nice day, you know that awesome day that we love so much in New York. So I was like, I'm gonna walk home because I was kind of in Midtown, I was going to Upper East Side and somewhere around like eight blocks in I was like, huh, I really wonder, that idea was so obvious. I really wonder if those were two dudes would they uh, get it, like 11 yeses instead of one? And, and I'm disproportionate, you, know, you have to understand, and this is not even close, my mom, my wife, and my firstborn daughter are my life, right? I love my bro and my dad and all this, but that is my world. Um, and I, you know, if, if God, you know, I actually don't care, but if my daughter, God for willing, would want to be a big time entrepreneur and CEO, I, I would want her to dominate the world. And I think that people want to look at the world through rosy glasses or very cynical glasses. And I think the answer is always in between. Do, there's a million women entrepreneurs or storytellers that are killing it, right? But I think the reality is, the reason I answered your question so emphatically is we have, to re- we have to recognize that the way the market consumes people is different based on if they're a woman, if they're African American, if they're a Muslim American, if they're like, they're like just a million, di- how about pretty? How about just being pretty versus not being as pretty, right? So like, I mean, there's a million variables in play and I think it's insane. I come from so- the Soviet Union, right? Where everything being the same is the game, it's just not real. Right, and so, by the way, it doesn't mean that it's worse. It doesn't mean that it's worse at all. It just means that it's different. So is it the same? No, it's not the same. Because everybody's gonna consume it differently. And it's not, the, and by the way, it's also not the same for each, you're an African American woman. The way that you're consuming me is different than those two Russian guys over there who have a connection point with me that's different. So like, I think this whole notion of like, like, is it the same? Of course it's not. This, it's a silly question. I think what's more important is, I'm a big believer of betting on your strengths. And I spoke to it earlier. Again, like, I won the lotto completely. White male in America and born in the Soviet Union? I won triple big. I think, you know, like, I think that, I think we have to understand how things work. But I'll tell you that my, my how about this? Casey and I did a video together the other day. Casey's fan base hated me as a net score, because I talked over him during the show, because I get hyper, and this and that, and I went into my own channel and had to apologize to like 500 people that came over from Casey's world that said, Gary Vee, fuck you, you suck shit. (laughs) So, so, you know, that was like three and a half hours the other day, that I'm sorry, 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 you know. And so, I, I think that we have to recognize, we need to spend less time of what we can't be, and we need to spend more time on what we can be. Awesome. Um, question from, from Daniel online. Um, and this is, Casey, we'd love to have you kick this off. But we'd love to hear you know, your thoughts on what are the necessary ingredients for really great storytelling? The necessary ingredients for really great storytelling. Um, you know, I, I talk to a lot of young YouTubers. Um, YouTube is a world that I love. So I was referring to earlier when I talked about uh, vlogging being my favorite genre of filmmaking. Um, but the truth is, like, story isn't just a part of it. Story is it. It's only the story. The story is the only thing that matters. It's like my least favorite question from young people is, what kind of camera should I get? Like, that is a horrible place to begin. Like, whatever cell phone yeah, you have in your, whatever kind of, D-Rock's good. Whatever camera you have in your pocket is good enough. It's, the story is all that matters. So what does it take to tell a good story? I think, like, there are some, there are some, platitudes in there like honesty and truthfulness and having people relate to the character and things like that. But before all of that, there's like, there's really one thing. And that is like, do you believe in the story that you're trying to communicate? Why did none of you know about that deodorant campaign? Because whoever's communicating, it's like a bunch of dudes sitting in a room. I bet it was men. Case, real quick. How how do you feel about that deodorant campaign? and they came up with this idea. They fabricated we have degree, this idea. degree samples for everybody. Yeah, again, just, you know. my backpack. They came up with this idea. They fabricated it. They all like it was creativity by jury by committee, and it was just like this mushy garbage. Versus the story that I told, which was something that I was genuinely passionate about. And like, why is it that all of these YouTubers? Why is it that? Uh, all the vloggers, they, all they do is they talk about themselves. All I do is talk about myself in my YouTube video. It's not that we're all narcissists. I mean, we're all narcissists, but we're all narcissists. It's that that's the story they know. 
Like, I like to tell stories about myself from my life because that's what I know. So I think, like, the easiest, the most accessible thing when it comes to storytelling is tell the stories that you know, the stories you can relate to. I couldn't tell a story about, like, intergalactic warfare. I've never been there. But I can tell you what it means to, like, break up with a girlfriend. I can tell you what it means to, like, see a child being born. Those are the stories that I can tell the best because those are the experiences that I've been through. And just reflecting on back what I said earlier about the importance and why vlogging is such a big deal, it's because those are the only stories that are being told via vlogging. They're that person, the individual stories. And some people are really good at it, and you've probably heard of their names, and they're on billboards outside. Um, and other people, like, nobody's watching their content. Um, so there's a huge spectrum within there. But I think the best place to start with your story is, like, what do you know? And make that your story. Cool. Just say it loud. Just, just say it loud. There's like he turned it off. Yeah. It's kind of weird. This question goes about the concept of attention that we were talking about how to shift. And I've been reading the Gary your post on Facebook about adjusting fast. And my question is, how combine how to combine uh, looking where the attention is, adjusting fast, but at the same time making those action to keep aligned with the ultimate goal buying the jets or the mountain that you want to climb or whatever. You know what I mean? Because you, you may see that the attention goes all of a sudden to some place. You adjust quickly, but maybe those actions already be in another direction. I, I think the thing that people, you know, it's interesting. Even the way you ask that question, it's interesting how my brain functions on when I'm moving fast to new platforms or new opportunities. I so overvalue context and learning. Everyone's like, are there enough people there? I do this with brands all the time. I'm like, we're not going there for the reach that you need, it's the social cam. How many people remember social cam? Right? Social cam, we went all in on it, it had like a burst, Facebook disproportionately fed it in the news feed, it got like a trillion downloads in eight seconds, it was like the thing to be. Most of you don't even remember it. This was Vine and Instagram video before those, this was the winner, this was the Instagram of video, social cam. We went all in. In 2009, all 11 brands that we had went all in. It failed. People get crippled by that. It's the foundation of what made us successful on Vine and Instagram video. You're always learning when you're making these bets. And so to me, people disproportionately overvalue the outcome versus the process and the context they picked up on. And so to me, if I see anything that's got growth, Right, if I'm not going, see the other thing, and I'm sorry I'm jumping a little bit. I'd love to say this, way too many people in our space are headline readers. Now I'm meeting chief strategy officer of these big agencies or other, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a social media expert, people in the audience, and when I really dig to are they a practitioner, they're not. And so how are you gonna be an expert or have an opinion on Snapchat if you don't use it? and if you don't watch other people use it. Like, how do you have two cents on what works on Instagram if you've posted four times on it? And so, I would tell you the reason I'm not crippled by that or even like fall into thinking that way is because I know how much value there is in picking up context for the next chest move and two, by being an actual practitioner. That's why I do my stuff so I really know. And I proudly stand in front of my company of all 20-somethings at what I'd like to think is the best social media agency, and I'm like, look, I'm 39, I'm the old man, I'm better at social media than every one of you. And you know what? They know it. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, um, we're gonna gonna move to our final question. Um, This is a a, a favorite of ours, and actually asked uh, online as well. Um, What would you both say is, I'm gonna do half of this. What was your, we already talked about the achievements. What, what would you say is your biggest failure and, and what did you learn from it? Yeah, my biggest failure is also my biggest success, um, which was my HBO show. I actually made a vlog episode about this exact moment in my career. But you know, my HBO show, like the tiny history on that is, we deficit funded it, so we paid for it ourselves out of pocket. Then we spent a year making the show for no money. Then we sold it to HBO, like the, the fucking crown jewel of television. They paid us millions of dollars for it. Um, and one that I was like 27. And I was like, holy shit, I made it. And I literally, like, I told myself that. And when I did, like, when I told myself that, like, I sat back, I put my feet up, and I was like, 
Nice. And that <laughs> moment lasted two years, and that was by far the biggest failure of my career. Like what I lost in those two years, like in the video that I described this, I say the term comfort is decline. Like at that moment, I had money and I had success and I had all these things. I was comfortable. Like I did it. I could finally sit back and relax. And that was by far the biggest failure in my career. Because when I woke up and realized that I had like been sitting on this comfortable with my hands behind my head just chilling, like I was so deep in the hole because the second you start to get comfortable, you start to sink like this. By the time I realized that, I was so deep down that I realized like starting from nothing. And that sounds crazy, but I really mean that. Like, I had five videos that I busted my ass on on YouTube before I broke like a thousand views. I remember having my own TV show on HBO that was still premiering episodes. And my kids' friends at middle school were getting more views on their YouTube videos than I was. Like I was this, I had just sort of evaporated. Like everything I'd done had gone away. I felt like nothing. That was by far my biggest failure in life, was not acknowledging that sooner. You know, I don't think I've ever said this out loud. Uh, I think my biggest failure is the first five years of my marriage. I, uh, I was running Wine Library for the first, for the majority of that, um, and I regret, and I don't have any regrets, but if, you, if I was forced into a regret, and so I don't regret it, but I do regret it, uh, that I didn't spend more time with my wife. I, uh, it was five years before we had children, and I just completely and utterly wish that I spent more weekends, at least two to three trips of a week or two to spend more time with her. And, uh, and it's really, it like, hurts my stomach right now to say this out loud to strangers, uh, but it was a huge failure and I think the nice thing is when I got into the next chapter, which is children, I've done a much better time of disproportionately creating more vacation. As a matter of fact, I'm on vacation right now. This is kind of an interesting rub. This was supposed to be my week last week and then I was gonna take the last two weeks. A couple a month ago I decided that, um, uh, no, I was gonna take an extra week back to what I learned on, what I missed out on with my wife. But then I was like, shit, I have a public event in New York on this Wednesday. So I've, I've been with my family in the Hamptons for the last five days. I came in this morning, had a work day doing this and I'm leaving tonight at 11.30 to go back. Um, I was a massive, you know, a massive failure in those five years of allocating the extra 14 weeks in those five years that I could have allocated that would have disproportionate value to my heart and my memories that I can never get back. And so what I like about myself is I'm pretty self-aware. I like that game, I try really hard. And I think it's, that loss has positioned more wins with my children. And I keep hacking at that every day. I love what I do more than breathing. I love what I do more than breathing. And so when you love something that much, it's hard to also reconcile that with the only other thing you love in your life, which is those seven to 15 people that are around you and called your family. It is the absolute challenge of my life because I love them both so, so much. Um, and it's hard, but uh, no question, the way I navigated my time with Lizzie in the first five years of our marriage um, is something I really fucked up. And, uh, and I really can't wait to my two rich kids go to camp for the summer <laughs> so that I can take my wife to Europe or the moon or whatever the fuck, galaxy battles. <laughs> whatever, whatever she's up for, no matter what's going on in my life, the, uh, the, uh, that month straight is me and her. And like I hack now more and more for time and it's hard because we have two young kids, but I blew that. Serious. Um, <laughs> Just bear with me, guys. I need this. I need this for the vlog. Are we done? All right. We all set, guys. It's been an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to the audio experience. It would mean the world, and I mean the world, if you could go and leave a rating on iTunes. Your word of mouth is my oxygen.